You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible is all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find a campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. We came when I was seven, and um, we, f- we flew in from Costa Rica. We landed in Orlando, and we really thought this would just be temporary, you know, be here for just a few years or a few months even, but we've now been here 20 years, so super long time. It, yeah, long time. So we got to the, the time where um, our visas were expiring, so we had to figure out if we were going to stay or if we were gonna go back to Costa Rica, and we just decided to stay. As soon as we made that decision, I became very fearful. I was scared to even tell my classmates of where I came from because I didn't know if they were if they would disapprove or if they would tell their parents and their parents would call someone else, and um, you just heard so many rumors. I was just a young girl and I remember thinking, God, why, why are you doing this? You know, I didn't choose to be here and yet I feel so alone and so misplaced. Time passed and everyone was, everyone in my family was able to get residency. My application just always kind of missed the timing. I just really felt like, God, you're remembering everyone else's prayers but mine. And um, that was really hard, just feeling like God was choosing to not listen to me. Without permanent residency, I didn't have a social security. And without a social, that meant no license, no going to college when I finished high school, no being able to work. And that's where a lot of my depression and anxiety came in because I I literally felt like I was wasting my life. So I really wanted to find out, you know, who is God? Because I I was in such a depressed, anxiety, fearful, filled place in my life that I knew I had to get out. So I created this list in my journal and it just says God is, and then it has this long list of of who God is. But as time went on, I was able to add more to the list. And then um, I really felt led to, on on another paper, write Maria is. And I found that a lot of the things that I wrote on the God is side made their way into the Maria is side because I'm made in his image. And so if God is wise and compassionate and kind, then I am to be wise and compassionate and kind. And um, that, that changed my life. The Lord wants to to answer our prayers truly, I, th- I believe he does, but oftentimes he has to mold our hearts to be able to receive that blessing. And so you don't wanna receive what you're asking for out of season. You wanna be in the right season with the right heart. Don't lose the opportunity to get to know the Lord in that season of waiting that you're in. God's for me, he's got me, his intentions are good. Would you thank Maria for sharing her story? And as Jonathan alluded, uh, curiously, after a 20-year wait, why does God make us wait so long for stuff? You know, 20-year wait. This week, she found out she has her green card. Would you praise the Lord for 
that gracious news for her, that really is terrific. Just, just a couple of quick things before we jump into the last two verses of the Gospel of John and finish our study over the last four months. First of all, next week we'll begin a study of the book of Amos for two months. It's an Old Testament book where he prophesies to a nation that has gradually moved away from God. It's not dissimilar from our own nation's experience, so we'll spend two months looking at the book of Amos together. And also this Wednesday night, the prayer time together. For those of you who are going through infertility, we have some women gathered here who have gone through that, had to wait long periods of time, my wife being one of them, eight years of waiting in our own infertility issue. And God delivered and gave us babies. And we're going to pray for those of you who want babies so desperately. So the best things we've learned about praying for people who are in difficult situations is to find somebody who has walked through that difficult situation and can believe in faith you can overcome it by the power of the Spirit. So they'll be here this Wednesday night to pray for you. So let's jump into the last two verses of John, which conclude this study over the last four months of the Gospel of John. Out of reverence for reading the Scripture, if you're able, would you now please stand? John 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. John's talking about himself. I, I am that disciple. I'm an eyewitness and who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. John is an eyewitness of Jesus, and if you've been with us for the past four months, the question that John repeatedly asks is this one, who is Jesus? It is the most important question you can ever ask. You must answer it. Is he just a mere mortal philosopher who died haplessly on a cross, or is he truly God in human flesh who came to save us from our sins, was risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day come back as our soon-coming king. Who is Jesus? You've got to make that decision. You, you can't live in Never Never Land not ever having made that decision. So John answers it for us throughout his whole gospel. He begins in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word means Jesus. So Jesus was with God in the beginning before this world was ever created. He's a part of the Godhead, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we see Jesus coming to earth, God in human flesh, and in John 2, performing his first miracle where he changes H2O to Merlot. He changes water to wine, giving evidence that God in human flesh controls all of nature. He is indeed who he said he is, God in human flesh. Then in John 5, for example, Jesus says, The Father gave me the ability to judge every person who's ever lived. What a claim. That he's going to judge every person who's ever lived. In John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger again. John 8, I am the light of the world. He who walks my path will be led to eternal life. John 10, I am the gate through whom you have to walk to get to the Father. I am the great shepherd, he said also in John 10. A, an Israelite allegory that all of them would have understand of Jesus being God in human flesh. The great shepherd over Israel. Uh, John 12, John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. What, what a claim. If you believe in Jesus, you'll never die. 
Uh, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A claim of uniqueness and exclusivity. We only are saved through Jesus. John 15, I am the vine, another allegory from Israel's history uh, that connected to him. He gives us the fruit of our life in him. So it was a clear claim to deity throughout the whole gospel of John. So that's what Jesus said about himself. Who is Jesus? You must make that conclusion. Now, what did he do? John says here in these last two verses that he did so much that all of the books of the world that describe all that he did, the libraries of the world cannot contain those books. So we don't have just information about what Jesus did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have even more that he did that's not recorded. So what did Jesus do? What did this God in human flesh that some of us here today believe in do? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let me share with you what Jesus did. And it's wrapped around this Hebrew word called shalom. Shalom. Say it with me. Shalom. S-H-A-L-O-M. When faithful Jews greet each other, to this day they say shalom. And then when they leave, they say shalom. It's a regular word in the Jewish vocabulary. What does it mean? Well, I've written a few words up here that are synonyms to shalom. It's wholeness, completion, prosperity, blessing, tranquility, security. Here are a few more. Safety, happiness, rest, calm, justice, righteousness, health, tranquility, peace, The New Testament word for peace is really the root of shalom. And then finally, victory. Shalom is victory. How many of you like to win? I like winning more than losing. Shalom is victory. So how does the word shalom fit with an understanding of who Jesus is, particularly as it relates to the Bible? I am convinced that you'll never walk in power with Jesus until you have a biblical worldview. Now, every single one of you here today has a worldview. Something guides your life. And as you look at life, it is filtered through that view. Some of you have a new age worldview. You have a Hindu perspective on how life should be lived. That's one worldview. Another one is a nihilistic worldview. That that word means nothingness. It basically means there's no God. It's an atheistic, agnostic worldview which believes I eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I may die. There's no God. There's no accountability. Who cares? I live life on my own terms. That's another worldview. Well, the worldview that Christians, followers of Jesus, are supposed to have is a biblical worldview. And I would suggest to you that a lot of the anemia of the present-day church is because Jesus' members and followers in the church do not have a biblical worldview. You don't look at life through the lenses of what the Bible teaches. And until you do, you'll not understand who Jesus is and what he did and what he'll do for you. And that biblical worldview is wrapped around the word shalom, completion, wholeness, health, prosperity, victory. Let me explain to you what a biblical worldview is. It all begins in Genesis 1 and 2. God created the world, 
And at the end of every day, he looked at his creation, test time, okay? And he looked at his creation and he said, it is what? It's good. It's good. You know what another word for good is? Shalom. It's shalom. It's operating the way I want it to operate. So there's shalom with God. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They walked in the garden with him, talked with him regularly, and he provided for them. There was shalom with one another, shalom in human relationships, perfect love. Can you imagine a marriage where there was no bickering? Where they lived in harmony with one another, with their children, with other people. No disloyalty, no betrayal, perfect shalom among people. And there was shalom within. No anxiety, no fear, perfect harmony, shalom inside. And there was shalom with creation. Every atom in God's world operated with harmony, blessing, purpose, no tornadoes, no earthquakes, no floods, no fires. Shalom is the byword of Genesis 1 and 2. God's original intent, the kingdom of God, operating under God's reign and rule. Now, he said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden. I, I provide for you generously any and every need. Just don't eat of one. There was one rule that God gave Adam and Eve. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't you become self-reliant. Don't you decide what's good and evil. You leave that to me. Just obey me, live with me, and I'll provide for you. Now, in Genesis 3, verse 1, there's introduced a character in the Bible called the evil one. He's a malevolent, godless force. John 10.10, interestingly, gives us the job description of the devil who rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him. Jesus said, the thief, who is the evil one, came to kill, steal, and destroy. Job description of the devil, kill, steal, and destroy from God's shalom. And Jesus said, but I came, in John 10, 10, to give you life, okay, second test, and to give it to you, what? Abundantly. I came to give you shalom. Jesus came to give us shalom, the fullness of God in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, the evil one tempts Adam and Eve to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lying to them. Did God really say you can't? And of course they did. And at that moment, folks, in Genesis 3, sin shatters shalom. Sin shatters shalom. And everything in God's once perfectly ordered world is shattered. There's no longer shalom with God. Inside, our relationship with him is broken because of this sin. There's no longer shalom with one another. There's now enmity and strife. There's no longer shalom within. Do you know what the first negative emotion that's mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 3? You know what it is? Who knows it? It's fear. It's fear. God never intended you to live in fear. He wants you to live in faith in that relationship with him. And, of course, 
the shalom of creation was destroyed. And, and you see it in evidence in chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis. For example, in chapter 3, you have women now who have pain in childbirth, never a part of shalom. You have women now trying to find their identity in men, their husbands, not in God. Any of that something you women identify with? The men who've hurt you and used you and abused you? Men try to find their identity in their work and not God? And God says creation is cursed. There are thistles and thorns in creation. Work is now hard. We're in the garden. It wasn't. And then in Genesis 4, you have Cain killing his brother Abel, the first murder, not a part of Shalom. You have in Genesis 5, a group of people living in rebellion against God, and God brings judgment against them with a flood, never a part of Shalom. Genesis 11, groups of people get together, and they decide to build a tower to God to show that they are able to oversee their lives and not God. It's a statement of pride of self-aggrandizement. And of course, God intervenes and takes those groups of people and scatters them throughout the world, all of them speaking a different language, thus the beginning, folks, of tribalism, nationalism, sectarianism, classism, which is the foundation for all wars and genocide. Never intended to be a part of God's original intent, his original shalom. But the way sin has shattered God's once perfect creation. Then what does God decide to do? Well, God doesn't like that his shalom has been shattered. So he calls a man named Abram in Genesis 12. And he says, through you I'm going to bless every person on the face of the earth. He enters a covenant of grace with him says, I will bless you and you'll bless the world. And so Abraham has a group of people who descend from him in four generations to the end of Genesis. There's 70 of them. They're in Egypt with Joseph. And when Genesis 50 ends, between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1, you have 400 years of a parenthesis of silence. And that 70 Jews out of Abraham's seed grows to 3 million slaves in Egypt. But God says, I've not forgotten you. I made the covenant with Abraham, and I will bring you that shalom. So he comes and delivers them out of the slavery of Egypt, has a miracle in the Red Sea to deliver them, showing God's God over all creation. He saved his people. He gave them shalom, takes them to the other side of the Red Sea, to Mount Sinai, where he does something special. He says, to reestablish shalom, I'm going to begin with you, my chosen people. And here's the deal. Out of all the world's different perspectives on religion, mostly emphasizing polytheism, I am forming a monotheistic nation called Israel. You will worship me as the one true God. There's a tabernacle that I'll build among you where you'll come and worship me. You'll be like no other nation on the face of the earth. And I'm going to give you rules and laws by which to live. Not because I hate you. Some of you think laws keep you from living life to the full, but laws are guardrails. God intentionally has rules and regulations to keep us from going off the side of the road. And he said to his people, if you'll obey these laws as the one true God and just worship me, I'll restore shalom to you. 
You'll be planted amidst a godless, reprobate people, the Canaanites, but you will live as my people. And Leviticus 19, verse 18 is a fascinating verse, kind of encapsulates all of the laws, all the rules that God gave, and here it is. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. What does that sound like? Jesus. That's the verse he quoted from Leviticus 19, 18, encapsulating all of the law and the prophets, which is basically the Old Testament. So he said to Israel, if you'll just worship me and obey my laws, I'll bring shalom to this nation, and all the nations around you will hunger for that shalom, and they'll want to follow me. So so it's interesting is God takes the Israelites to the edge of the promised land. And if you know this is so cool, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, he divides the people. The people are on one side of a mountain, the other people on the other side of the mountain. In Deuteronomy 28, the people cry out to the other side of the mountain, if you'll just obey the laws of God and worship him, he will restore shalom to you and he'll bring you blessings beyond belief. There won't be miscarriage. There won't even be mildew in your midst. They, they, they shout that out in the valley to the other side of the mountain. And if you know your Bible, on Deuteronomy 29, here's how the people answer. But if we don't worship you, God, alone, and we don't obey your law, and we don't follow you, you'll bring curses upon us that will include everything from mildew to miscarriage. And they start shouting this back to one another. Obviously, they want to choose to live in Deuteronomy 28, right? And be a shalom-driven nation. So they enter the promised land, and they form eventually a capital city at the center of their religious life. It's the place where people come to worship and receive teaching about the law. And this capital city, third test, is named what? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You with me? The city, Jerusalem. Of Shalom. So God dropped a radioisotope in the middle of that nation, the capital city, where Shalom would be lived out in worship and obedience to God. And it would go throughout all the nation, and again, the nations around them would hunger for that kind of God and it would be converted thereafter. But what's the problem? The people ultimately rebelled against God. They have that sinful Genesis 3, shalom shattered in their own hearts. Some of you really don't believe in original sin. It's a clear teaching of the Bible over and over again. But for those of you who doubt the efficacy and reality of original sin dwelling in your heart at the moment of your conception, living thereafter, just have a baby, right? Let me ask you this question. For for those of you who have children, and Meryl and I have three, Do you have to teach them to obey or disobey you? You have to teach them to obey you. Why? Because they're birthed with a bent toward self-reliance, toward treachery, toward rebellion. We're all birthed with that. Crying out to God, I'll live life on my own terms. And, And God knew that. And that's the source of shalom being shattered. So Israel went on their own way. And a part of the Bible, we'll look at this with Amos. So the judgment of God that came upon them when they rebelled against him. In fact, in, in their captivities, God said to them, if you disobey my law, I'll ultimately take you out of this land. I'll vomit you out of this land, he said. And we're going to look in a moment about Babylon and what he did there. 
So Israel fails, and you have Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, warning them how they'd failed. And then you have 400 years of silence, again, between Malachi and Matthew. And then you have God deciding to do something else with the problem of Shalom being shattered. What did he do? John's gospel especially tells us he became one of us. He, he, he put on human flesh. And for 33 years he lived the perfect life because that we couldn't live because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by God. He bypassed that normal way sin is transmitted in the world. And he went to a cross and died for the forgiveness of our sins so that shalom can be reestablished between us and God and within ourselves and with other people. Now, remember the evil one tempted Adam and Eve, and God said to them, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, remember what he said next, fourth test, what did God say to Adam and Eve? You will surely what? Die. If you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. Folks, death is an evil intrusion into God's shalom. It was never a part of what God originally intended. Never. So in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what's one of the things he takes care of? He takes care of the problem of death. Shalom's beginning to be reestablished through this Jesus. And when he comes to his disciples, for example, in, in the storm, what's the first word he says to them? Fifth test. What's the first word? Peace. Peace be with you. It is I. Guess what that word irene in the Greek is associated with in the Hebrew? The word of shalom. Shalom I give you. My, my, my presence I give you. So he solved the problem of death. He gives us a new relationship with God through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And then he does something amazing. After he ascends to heaven... He sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts who believe in him. And the Holy Spirit is the peace and presence of Jesus. It's shalom. John 14, 26, Jesus said, Peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Shalom I give to you. Not like the world gives. The world thinks peace is the absence of conflict. I give you original intent. I give you creation as God intended it. Now, there's some interesting verses in the Old Testament that might come alive for you now as I read them to you. One is the high priestly benediction or blessing upon the people called the Aaronic benediction. It's Aaron's benediction upon the people that he would give them every day. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. He said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you what? No, give you shalom. That's the word, shalom. Not just the absence of conflict, but, but God's abiding countenance and victory over everything in your life. And then you see in Isaiah 9, 6, a prophecy about the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus. Many of you know this verse. It's read often at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Shalom. The Messiah would be the Prince 
of shalom. He would come to restore Genesis 1 and 2. And then interestingly, when Jesus was born, angels appeared to the shepherds. Remember this verse, Genesis, Luke 2, 13 and 14? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom, peace, shalom among those with whom he is pleased. For those who believe in him, the gift of shalom is for us. And then in John 20, some of you may remember my Easter message. Please tell me you remember my Easter message. (laughs) Where Jesus appeared to his disciples and three different times he said to them, remember? Test number seven. He said what? Peace be with you. Three times. Guess what the word is? Irene slash shalom. In his resurrection appearance to his disciples, he said, shalom be with you, shalom be with you, shalom. So, Jesus has his Holy Spirit deposited in the hearts of those of us who believe shalom being the greatest blessing of all. And then he goes to heaven, ascends to heaven, and then he forms something called the church. It's a collection of moral fallops like you and me, right? It's a group of people who've been living in their shattered shalom all their lives, rebelling against God. And we hear the good news, the gospel, that God wants to restore us to Genesis 1 and 2. He wants to forgive us of our sins and have a new shalom relationship with him. And all those who realize this inward presence of the Holy Spirit, the powerful shalom of God, we come together as an organism that's organized, but it's called the church of Jesus Christ. And we are to do his work, establishing shalom. Well, let me give you another word for shalom that Jesus used a lot. The kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God. So, so, for example, whenever Jesus did a miracle, you know, changed H2O to Merlot, or wherever he healed a person of a disease or a demonic oppression or a back bent over, whenever Jesus healed somebody, what is it? It is evidence of shalom coming to the earth. It's an evidence of the kingdom of God breaking through to the kingdom of this world. So that's why Jesus, in the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, a part of it is Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is. What? Shalom's operating in heaven right now. So we should pray constantly that shalom should come from heaven to earth. And the work of the church, folks, is first of all to proclaim the gospel, tell people about this marvelous shalom and how they can be restored to original intent. And all the blessings that God wants to give them. The victories in life. But it's also to do acts of compassion, mercy, and kindness. It's caring for the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. And every time we preach the gospel and see somebody come to faith in Jesus and then be baptized as evidence of going under the water, dying to self, original sin defeated, coming out of the water, living in new resurrection, shalom. We celebrate, but we also go and we try to give food to the hungry. We try to give water to the thirsty. We give clothes to the naked. We visit the prisoner because we know as we look in those faces, we see the face of Jesus, what God intended their shalom to be. But here's the deal. Jesus is in heaven. The church has continued to do its work. And, for example, in the early church, 
You, you saw shalom starting to manifest itself in the Roman Empire, a godless place, just like the Canaanites around Israel, around the church was godlessness in every way, and the church starts operating in shalom, and women who are considered second, even third-class citizens, the church says, no, you're equal with men, and, and they take positions of leadership in the church, and within several hundred years, the Roman Empire's view of women changed because the church operated in shalom. And you had little children, not one, especially little babies who were women, discarded on garbage heaps. And the church said, no, little children are created in the image of God. And they would go take those children off the garbage heaps, adopt them into their families, and raise them in shalom. And within three to 400 years, the Roman Empire changed its view toward the value of children because of the church living in shalom. And they had slaves and free in the church, and slaves were way down on the totem pole. And yet, they were lifted up as equal members of the church. And over 400 years, slavery was abolished in the Roman Empire because the church lived in shalom. And what Jesus has done now, he has ascended to heaven, and he's asking the church to bring shalom to his world. Now, now here's what you need to know. Our bodies are still broken, creation is still broken, and there's still a lot of mess in this world. But one day, have I reminded you one day? Have I reminded you that one day? Have I told you, dear friends, that one day Jesus is coming back? One day Jesus is coming back, and you can applaud all you want to about that one. And when he comes back, what's he going to reestablish? Shalom. Genesis 1 and 2. That's the biblical worldview. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, shalom shattered Israel, the church, the second coming, the reestablishment of shalom in Genesis 1 and 2. That's your biblical worldview. But when he comes back, I'm going to tell you something, folks, and I'm going to need you to help me out here. I need you to talk back at me. Okay, none of this South Charlotte sitting passively in your seats, okay? I need you to get involved with me. And I'm going to point to you and I want you to say amen, which is a biblical Christian word, which just means so be it, yes, triple exclamation mark, okay? When I point to you, I want you to cry out yes. You got it? Three people got it. You got it? Good. Here we go. When Jesus comes back, this is what's going to happen. He returns in all of his glory with a trumpet sound blaring in the middle of the night. And when he comes back, there's going to be no more mental health problems. Can you say amen to that? There's going to be no child born except to loving moms and dads. Did you know that when he comes back, there's going to be no divorce, no brutality, no gender confusion at all? No deformed babies ever born. Can you say amen to that? No cancer. No MS. No MD. No ALS. There's going to be no diabetes. There's going to be no diseases. There's going to be no kidney failure. No digestive problems. There's going to be no lung congestion. Now you can applaud. Do you say amen to that? None of that is going to exist when God reestablishes shalom here. There's going to be no infertility problems, no miscarriage, no aging, and hallelujah, no arthritis. To God be the glory on that one. There's going to be no mildew, no dust, 
No slander, no gossip, no betrayal, no abortion, no lying, no depression, and no money problems whatsoever. Would you praise God for that one? There's going to be no hunger, no thirst, no poverty, no sex trafficking, no slavery, no pornography, no graft, no corruption. Would you praise God for that? There's going to be no fires. At the 930 service, Michael and Lene Shelter were here with about 50 firefighters. And you know, Michael and Lene lost their son, Richard, in a fire tragedy a year ago today. And I said to them in the middle of the sermon, like I'm doing to you right now, Michael and Lene, there are going to be no fires in heaven. Would you give God praise for that? And no children lost in accidents, Gentry and Hadley Eddings and the shelters, and those of you who've lost children, that's not going to happen in heaven. There's going to be no tornadoes, no floods, no earthquakes, no hurricanes, no envy, no strife, no conflict, no addiction, no dissipation, no anorexia, no bulimia, and no false body images in heaven. Would you praise God for that? In heaven, it doesn't matter if you're big or if you're tiny. If you're tall or you're short, God's going to look at you and go, Woo, you're just the way I made you. You're so beautiful in my sight. Would you give praise to God for that shalom? And we can eat whatever we want to, and we're not going to gain one pound. To God be the glory for that one. Amen and amen. There's going to be no deformity, no blindness, no lameness, no wheelchairs, and nobody will ever ever walk with a cane, and I'm going to be able to dunk a basketball again to God be the glory for all of that. In, in Isaiah 11, he, he gave a vision of what it would happen when Messiah came back. The, the leopard would lie down with the kid, the calf with the lion, the cow with the bear, the lion and the ox, and children would be able to play before the hole of a snake without worry or fear. Indeed, the children would actually play with the snakes, and I'm still trying to get my head around that one. <laughs> because creation is going to be shalomed. The animal kingdom, the human kingdom, all of us are going to operate as God intended. That's what we've got to look forward to. Now, to wrap it up real quickly, I don't know how much longer God's going to give me here in this church. I hope for another 10 years. We're into the middle of a 10-year plan right now. We haven't got it finalized to communicate with you. But let me just share with you one quick thing. The Israelites disobeyed God, okay? And he warned them, if you do that, you're going to be put in captivity. So they disobeyed God. Guess where they ended up? Captivity. And they're in Babylon, the most godless place imaginable. And you know what God says to them? Through Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah 29. You're going to be there for 70 years. Deal with it. That's Chadwickian, but deal with it, okay? Marry, have children, buy homes, get settled. And then he says something extraordinary in Jeremiah 29, 7. He said, and pray for and work for, you ready? The shalom of Babylon. Up to me, destroy the godless Babylonians. <laughs> God says, no, until I return again, people of God in my church, marry, have children, buy homes, get your jobs, pray for and work for the shalom of Charlotte. 
Did you know Charlotte's last in the 50th largest cities in America on upward mobility? Children out of poverty here can't escape. They just can't. Well, you know what? Forest is going to help them. We're going to feed the hungry. We're going to clothe the naked. And we're going to preach the gospel throughout this area. And we're going to work furiously over the next 10 years for the shalom of Charlotte until Jesus returns again. Would you join me? Would you join me? In 10 years from now, we ain't last anymore. We're the city that's known for the greatest upward mobility because of the church of Jesus Christ called Forest Hill, which believes in a biblical worldview that emphasizes shallow. To God be the glory.